you know, my mom taught me when I was a, like a young kid to see something beautiful about everybody. Pick one nice thing that you like about people and focus on that. If you don't know someone or you feel uncomfortable, just find one nice thing you like about someone and focus on that for a while. Uh, that's very much a part of my portrait style. And I think it's why uh, people are attracted to it. It doesn't matter people are classically beautiful or not. I make beautiful portraits of all sorts of people. There's something about everybody that really speaks to me. I have an easy time like finding beauty in in people. And um and so I, I think that comes from my childhood and just my my kind of positive, optimistic nature imbued to me by my by my mother back in the day, you know. Dear friends, it's Kurt Derdix and welcome back. If this is your first time listening, I am so glad you found us. This week, I'm excited to share my conversation with my friend Chris Krug. Chris is a well-known professional photographer, having taken photographs with presidents, supermodels, rock stars, billionaires, and cultural protagonists like you and me. Chris also is a technologist and an author exploring artificial intelligence. He's US born, but based in Vancouver, British Columbia, And this conversation covers lots of ground, and one of the highlights is us unpacking his photography process. We get technical, we also discuss language and how he chooses to re-script the violent language associated with photography for a more intimate and profound approach, which I really appreciated, and I hope you will too. And Chris and I have lived a lot of life together, spent a lot of time at Baja, Mexico surfing, and uh, he's one of my favorite people, and I'm delighted to have him onto the program today. So without further ado, here's Chris. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, without further ado, it is my profound privilege and pleasure to introduce to some of you, most of you know this guy, Chris Krug. You're a legend, buddy. It's so good to see you. What's up, man? It's a big, wide internet out there, Curdy D. It's not as if most of them know me. Oh, man. Uh, well, I am one of the the chosen ones, Dan, because you and I have this really uh, auspicious, uh, multidimensional uh, weave. Uh, I, I think kind of just thinking about how we met out of the life we've lived, it's, 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 it's interesting. I, I met you first through Baron Miller, who I think you grew up with in Sacramento. Baron and I were doing... Yeah, man. Uh, Baron Miller and I I played trumpet in the band together. He was the first trumpet. I was the second trumpet. He was a little older than me, so I always looked up to that guy. And he had a a mean Kareem Abdul-Jabbar-style hookshot on the basketball team. Well, yeah, he is a tall dude, too, so... Baron, he's one of my my most favorite humans. Uh, He's in Nashville now doing... uh, marketing stuff he's so good at that and uh baron we love you and then i i remember i was always doing city source parents like yeah you got to meet my buddy chris krug and then um we, i remember we got on a phone call and then and then i think we met somewhere and i was working we, for esri well I, I i know but i think i felt like we had met before that but i remember i had just gotten off the main stage at the esri partner conference in 2011 and it was a big deal i got to sort of do a uh, a featured talk and um i came off the stage and there you were with a camera and you got some amazing photos of me but more importantly i was blown away that you were there and we ended up having this most amazing time that we ended up going to baja mexico on a bunch of trips you know we did that for years donald preston uh who was your oh, another guy that i grew up with an awesome friend from my childhood yeah 
was that really the first time that we had met at the Esri thing? Or I feel like we had met prior. Well, I don't think we met um, face-to-face prior because I remember knowing of you and having been introduced, but then you were doing City Source at the Esri UC and I was documenting it. And I actually stalked you during your, um, what do you call it? Not dress rehearsal, but mic, mic check or whatever. You know, they do those TED-style talks there. I think they had you in the round, like, in this kind of like floating stage in the middle of the audience there or whatever. And uh, I had figured out that if I, if I came at that time, I could track you down and, and bend yeah. here for a little while. So. Yeah, that was epic. That was a very uh, memorable moment. What a cool company Esri has been, you know, like talk about one company I can say almost anywhere in the world in people's eyes, like, oh, really? You work with Esri, huh? Like that's, yeah, it's a pretty awesome company that a lot of people have never heard of, you know? Yeah, I just got the chills. Um, yeah, yeah, and then you did a bunch of work at TechCrunch. I get, I mean, some of the there was a period of like 2011 to 2015 that you and I were bumping into each other uh, in a professional context, and then there was a there was a lot of sort of hashtag business and pleasure. Yeah, well, we we've got that overlapping connection with Anima and the Connect.com crew. They were trying to build that really cool social graph um app back in the day you know and uh the esri stuff and the city source stuff and uh our love for for pacific ocean waves yeah we have some incredible mutuals on linkedin too some of these people have been on my pod robert scoble andrew warner kelly yo Etzel from ted frank gruber um just some like that whole class of folks did you see scoble's big news this week man no what was oh dude so scoble's been talking about launching his new show called unaligned and he launched. I saw, I saw a new show come up, but I didn't. He, I didn't yeah, well, he put out his first episode of his new show, and it's actually really good. His first guest was epic. It's this guy from the AI music space. But the big news is, day one, Elon Musk retweeted Robert Scoble, and he got thirty million views on his show on the first day. Amazing! Yeah, man. Yeah. Amazing. Well, the Robert Scoble interview on my pod is incredible because he basically. Uh, um, he got me too, and he ended up getting uh, sober. And he, he, my show was the first show he came and talked about that. And uh, he, uh, I, my first episode of my podcast is my dad, who I helped get sober in college. So Robert and I sort of bonded over that experience. I'm such a fan of Robert, and what he I, is r- really wrong. But I also believe in the even the context of my dad that you know it's uh, everybody deserves a shot of redemption. That was a very interesting time, you know. I was in friendship with him kind of when he was going through that. And it was a time where I was also friends with a couple other people who were quite publicly going through it, even a, a former business partner of mine. And man, what a hard time for me to figure out how to hold my friends accountable, but also to be supportive and where that line is between loving someone who's fucked up and you know holding space for redemption and then also being like yo unacceptable type behavior yeah update your programming um not okay and so yeah man way to like speak right to the heart of the matter very interesting time hey before you move on from the other stuff though you know i've been on my own little sobriety journey over the last couple years redefining my relationship with alcohol specifically and uh I'm not currently sober, but I am pretty proud that I have changed my relationship with booze. It had gotten to the point where I was drinking out of habit and not not being an angry drunk or anything like that, but, you know, dropping some balls and not bringing out the best side of myself and, and doing it, you know, out of habit a little bit. And so, yeah, I took two years and didn't drink, started therapy, 
doing some meditation. I started working out actually. Uh, once once I stopped drinking, my body changed quite a bit, and I found that you know just putting in the smallest amount of effort uh, yielded pretty awesome for me results, you know, and stuff. So uh, yeah, and now you know I. The whole time I was, you know, being sober and doing all this work, I was looking forward to a day when maybe I could have a more healthy relationship with alcohol again. And uh, I feel like I'm I'm getting close to that point, you know. And so, uh, yeah. Anyway, that's been a big part of yeah. what well, I'm, I'm so much. There's so much we can cover. When when I when we first started hanging out, I was sober. I was sober for three years during City Source because um, I came out of a great financial crisis in eight, and I got completely wiped out. And I sort of started hiding in the bottle. That was a uh, very uh, scary and unhealthy, and uh, you know, talked to my dad who had to do an AA, and sort of like got involved in that community for three years, and it was amazing. It's actually the church that I wish I had always been a part of. You know, in the context of like, you know, there was a real accountability. Or let me say, there was a lot of humility. You know, everybody's like admitting they have a problem, and there's this like flat hierarchy. There's sort of an absence of power structure and all that. I mean, yeah, I guess it is like the alcoholic's version of everybody is a sinner, except you take a little bit more personal responsibility for your own sins in that case, yeah. Yeah, and there's like, you look, look like, and if somebody sins or whatever, to use that term, you sort of have the, the incentive of getting that chip. Like my dad, he, you know, he's, he's like on a 23rd year chip, and those are like big deals, you know? Oh, yeah, but, you know, you fuck it up. Well, you start over and you start counting in no sense and beating yourself up or whatever, you know, that type of thing. So. Uh, why don't we do this? I, uh, maybe we come back to this. No, we can go the recovering Christian direction or whatever you like, brother. No, no, here. Yeah, we, we, I think we can come back to it. If, but I think I, I want to give the audience some context. You uh, a world-class photographer, one of the best photographers I've, I've ever seen, and you have a real gift, and uh, maybe catch the audience up a little bit about some of the work you've done, and then we could talk a little bit about the COVID thing, which is really wild for you. You have a, such a unique story. Yeah, it's true, man. Kind of get into uh, yeah. this other stuff. I've got a really unique photography career. I was one of the first users of Flickr. Stuart Butterfield started it back here in Flickr in 2003, and I was on board right from the very beginning. I had a two-letter username, KK, and uh, I still do. But, you know, I published over 100,000 Creative Commons licensed photos in high resolution on Flickr. And as that thing blew up, essentially the first ever social media network, um, I blew up along with it. Uh, a photograph of my son was the main homepage cover photo linked down into my profile and I really quickly amassed a huge following on Flickr and a huge you know means of distribution and so I started talking to other artists and creatives about how we could use social media tools to find our voice build an audience get ourselves out there and essentially like live our dreams or whatever you know and this is an early time when photographers were feeling really like scared and nervous and like like you know pulling up the drawbridge like if I stick my photos on the internet they'll be stolen and they'll be of less value. And uh, why would anyone hire me if all my stuff's just online for free? And, uh, you know, that was like the kind of uh, common wisdom of the time. And, and you know, we found that actually the opposite is true, that like the more you put yourself out there, the more you give yourself away, uh, the more value there is in your work and in your name, more people want you evolved in their stuff. And so I kind of discovered that paradox pretty pretty early on and got to ride it out. So that got me working for all sorts of people. You know, I used the Creative Commons license to give away my work to people who didn't have money, like students and nonprofits and artists and other people. 
while retaining the commercial rights to sell my work to other people. And so, you know, I have worked for National Geographic and Rolling Stone magazine. I've worked for Esri and for Microsoft. I've photographed everything from like New York Fashion Week, Paris Fashion Week, Kane Conti and Lime bikes and scooters back in the day sent me around the world to build them a stock photography archives of all the cities they were launching scooters and mobility bikes and stuff in. And so, yeah, I photographed Barack Obama and Bill Clinton and Mikhail Gorbachev and Shaquille O'Neal and Michael Stipe from Aria. I don't know, man. Like, it's a long list, you know, Kobe Bryant and, uh, yeah, I mean, like, just really a, a who's who of the last 20 years. And my photos have appeared pretty much everywhere. It's been, it's been a wild ride. That's incredible, and I I had I had some contacts, but but that's that's a lot deeper and and, and broader um, resume than than I was even aware, of, which is no surprise. And uh, well, one of the blessings and the curses is um, I've never had a portfolio. I've never curated my work into like a, here's my best eight or 12 images and here's what you should think about them. It's been like, you know, people are sometimes they're like, hey, I like your work. And I'm like, yo, what have you even seen? Because through Flickr via Google, there's 150,000 on-ramps into my work and I never really know which one you took to get there or whatever and stuff. And so, um, you know, it's it's beautiful in that there's a lot of ways and exposure in the world to my stuff, but it's also unique in that you know, since the beginning of photography, people would usually curate their best 20 images into a very linear experience of viewing an artist's work. And they would tell you exactly what to think about each one and stuff. But um, that style's never really worked for me. Couple of fun facts. Flickr, um, when we were at City Source, we had an incredible CTO, Dr. Alan Day, who was, uh, he's now at the top at Google doing a lot of their um, de developer evangelist stuff. Brilliant. He, we, we, uh, crowds, we basically, he built a, a mechanism to scrape, uh, any photos of potholes or vegetation and stuff on Flickr and geo, got the geo tag. That was one of the ways that we would push a lot of content into the system and show. It's amazing. Things. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It, it was brilliant. It actually helped me in the sales process to, sh because we didn't have a lot of content and we were able to show cities like, Hey, there's stuff that we found online, you know? We yeah. And so, um. And yeah, so there's more to that story. But then Stuart Butterfield, what a legend. He did Flickr. He also did Slack. Yeah. What, uh, I think you guys are buds, right? Yep. He used to live here in Vancouver and we got to know one another during the Flickr days. And then he had a little, uh, um, downtime after that. He was building his cool, um, his game. He keeps saying, he has this the track record of building these games and then breaking off one piece of the functionality of that game and then making that his product. So, uh, you know, Flickr used to be game never ending and they broke off the photo sharing function of that and became Flickr. And then I forgot what the name of Slack was, but I used to play that game before it was Slack. Um, oh, that's so brilliant. I was just listening. Rick Rubin has this uh, podcast that I'm just loving and you just had Ian Rogers on it who did uh, Apple Music and did, um, and uh, what was it? He did Winamp back in the day, MP3. Dude, and he had a, do you know Ian? I don't know, no. Ian had done this business called Topspin that was pretty high profile, but they tried to build everything into one platform. They tried to do like, you name it, the kitchen sink, all into, you know, Ticketmaster and Patreon and everything you could need. And that was as big insight as they should have just taken the Stuart Butterfield approach and just built a real simple feature set instead of trying to build ocean. I think by even back to your portfolio bit where they have so many 
so much content. I mean, I, the, even I had my last uh, episode I just published was, was with Frank Gruber and yeah, man, those are good the content creator and just talking about just how 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 do you focus on how do you edit? I mean, I think that's probably a a great segue into your you know because the tagline of the show is unique perspectives shaping the world. You through a visual media have a unique eye, all the pun intended, to to this kind of uh, this context. And so I think when you approach a subject, I'm sure people ask you, like, what's your process and stuff like that. But how, how do you think about it? How do you get ready for a... Dude, I'm so glad you asked me because I think I have some things that are pretty unique about my point of view that I've never really been able to share with people. Um, and so, uh, I don't know, I'll just kind of like riff on it a little bit Please. and we can go from there. But one is like, you know, my mom taught me when I was, a like a young kid to see something beautiful about everybody, pick one nice thing that you like about people and focus on that. If you don't know someone or you feel uncomfortable, just find one nice thing you like about someone and focus on that for a while. And so, uh, that's very much a part of my portrait style. And I think it's why uh, people are attracted to it. It doesn't matter people are classically beautiful or not. I make beautiful portraits of all sorts of people. There's something about everybody that really speaks to me. I have an easy time like finding beauty in in people. And um and so I, I think that comes from my childhood and just my my kind of positive, optimistic nature imbued to me by my by my mother back in the day, you know. Another thing is I don't really think of photos. There's there's some words I don't like when it comes to photography. I don't like talking about taking photos. I like to talk about making photos. Mm, I love that. Because making photos is a co-creation process between you and I. You know, you have to consent, obviously. And if you do more than consent, if you play along, we're going to get a lot better results, you know, and stuff if we work together and stuff. And so taking photos kind of elevates the photographer above the subject and creates a, a kind of distinction I don't like. I guess I would fall into the more gonzo style of photographer in some ways. You know, there's some photographers, you go to their website, it'll say right there on their website, they won't, they're going to wear all black and they're going to be a fly on the wall and they're going to, you know, you know, show you show you that their the, the perspective um you know from a neutral observer standpoint or something like that where i've always been much more of like a mix up kind of guy get in the middle of things and be a part of the the story you know when i was photographing for ted talks and the ted conference all those years the reason they hired me was i was like yo i will walk the walk of an attendee and show you exactly what an attendee sees uh, you know when people view my photos it'll feel like they were there or whatever and stuff and so yeah, I'm uh, often right in the middle of the dance floor with my camera in one hand and, uh, you know, a beverage in the other or something and um, mixing it up. And, and that's kind of my style. And and the other thing is I really try fair label would be participatory or something like that. Yeah, something like that. You know, just kind of breaking down those walls. I think it makes it a little bit more authentic. I like taking honest portraits of people which, you know, sometimes they're smiling, sometimes they're not, but it truly kind of shows a bit of their spirit and stuff. And so, so or participatory or just kind of, you know, right up, right up in there in the middle, man in the middle. In that context, like you've gotten such good candid photos of me. There's one where I was TechCrunch talking to somebody that came by the booth and it just was like, it's one of my favorite photos. Uh, just, you know, you're really good at capturing uh, the essence of people. And I think back to the beauty bit, like, I was just curious, like beauty, 
Do you think at the end of the day, beauty is, is that a feeling? Is that a feeling that we get beauty? Like what is beauty? <laughs> yeah, man. Um, it's a really interesting question. You think it's a feeling, huh? I wonder, I mean, it's cause I wonder if it's something that you, you see something beautiful. I mean, like working at Ezri all those years, one of the things I, I, I got really in tune with was this, the, 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 um, the interplay between the eye and the mind and the heart. And Jack Dangerman always talks about this thing about um, the above the line. Jack is uh, the CEO of Esri, founder of Bert, folks catching up. And, and it's this whole trip about living above the line is context and below the line is content. And the content and the below the line is that stimulus response. And and oftentimes it's the survival instinct and it's the getting caught in the glue. Um, and then and then above the line is the imagination and creativity. And there's probably some Buddhism to it in the context of like, you know, like Eckhart Tolle in the in that classic book uh, talks about you watching the thinker. You could watch the thoughts and observe the thoughts or feel the feeler and you could you sort of have like this, uh, um, this kind of a separation where you're able to feel the feelings, but you're able to also like have a conversation with those feelings. The same thing with the thoughts, and and I and in and then in the context of Esri, and I, it's another thing I learned about with my my mentor Duke Stump is this idea of see feel change, and and we we used to talk a lot about this at Esri, where you if the map helps you see something. And that that seeing gives you a feeling of, of of what to do next or an intuition, mm-hmm. and then and then the, that feeling gives you the uh, the courage or the the discipline or the uh, or the charge or the drive to go do some action. So I think in the, trying to peel back the question about beauty and feeling, yeah, I was just to say that uh, well, when it comes to to beauty as I see it, I think that um, I often walk away from a an encounter with beauty feeling inspired or kind of like called to to a greater part of myself uh, to kind of like step it up. I, I think that's how often how I, I I encounter beauty. So um, I I feel it as like a call to kind of like be my best self. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. For me, I've always. You know, I had these funny little ears. I used to have a really bad uh, speech impediment. I had to do so much um, speech therapy. And in 08, 07, I got my hearing, and that really helped me out. And uh, I used to be very self-conscious. I used to think I was really ugly. I used to, you know, like that would be very vain. And as I'd gotten older and, you know, you kind of, you, you know, you start to Maybe in my case, I, some things I was able to resolve and kind of work through, um, other things that you, know, you just sort of like let it go. As a photographer, do you get a sense about people's, uh, sort of self image? I'm sure you do. Like, oh man, the, uh, the, the psychology of self that is revealed by being a photographer who makes portraits with people is really incredible. And I've definitely noticed some, you know, phenomenons over the years. You know, one, one being that if I show you photos I made of you today, if I show you them tomorrow, you'll look at them with much different eyes than if I show them to you a month from now. And so there's a, it's a pattern there. What's there's an interesting fine line to walk between showing people things very quickly so they can feel like, yeah, we got it, a sense of accomplishment or whatever, but then also giving it a little bit of time to 
to sit before you show it to them. And this is people, I would say, in particular, who are a little bit, you know, image conscious or like um, have some self-doubt around their their looks or really just trying to put their best foot forward or whatever. But, um, you know, if I show you photos of you tomorrow that I made today, you may look at like, uh, the bags under your eyes and comment something like, oh, I should have slept better that night. Or you may look at your hair and like be like, yo, I was having a bad or good hair day or something like that. Or um, the types of things that you notice or comment on are these kind of more incremental differences like around your eyes or your hair or, or things like that, or maybe your outfit or something like that. But if I let those things sit for a month or three months or something like that and I bring them back to you, uh, then you're much more likely to respond to it from an emotional place and to remember like what you were thinking or feeling that day or like what was on your mind and to instead of pick yourself apart and objectify your own self i think you're i've noticed that people are a lot more likely to look at themselves as a cohesive whole and to be um more generous with themselves around nitpicking looks and stuff like that yeah that's interesting yeah, this idea of, of uh, giving space in the context of time gives a, a, a better, uh, kind of a more a, a wider perspective. I do not know what it is specifically. It's as if we use a completely different measuring stick for measuring a photo a month after it's taken than the day after it's taken. It's very interesting. You know, we're talking about like your insights, beauty. There's more that I want to get into, but yeah. double, double click a little bit more into beauty. Like asymmetry is like a pretty classical uh, sense of beauty, right? Oh yeah. But I mean, I don't really understand that one very in depth. I mean, there's also asymmetry as well. Right. And that creates motion and unbalance and leads a a viewer's eye through an image and stuff. And so it's almost like, I feel like symmetry is kind of easy. And I went there first in my career trying to make mandalas and reflective mirror images and things of that nature, you know, stuff. But, um, I'm much more interested in asymmetrical forms right now and unbalanced things and um, things in which, you know, they're, they're still or movement or, or they're still are fixed, but yet there's motion or movement carried through. Those things are very interesting to me right now. If there is anything that I want to say on this topic, you know, I think you've experienced too, man, that beauty is a very interesting combination of what lies inside somebody and what lies outside them as well. And I think that the kind of like unique way that a person carries that blend with them, their personality and their appearance um, really comes to define who they are and like our experiences with them and stuff. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of uh, attractive people in the world, but, um, you know, hey, as we enter into this AI age, I wonder what our response to beauty is going to, how it's going to change because like, you know, these computers can make perfection all day long, you know, and stuff. And so it's like, I already see a youthful response to the perfect images of this day and age is like all the 16 year olds, I mean, they'll post blurry out of focus, weird things that look like they were taken on film cameras from the eighties or whatever, even though they have like some of the best digital technology known to man in the palm of their hands. So, um, how we respond to all the perfection and beauty and images over the, the coming little while with the AI revolution is going to be very interesting. Yeah. One other sort of bit, and then we move on because I'm just so fascinated with this is uh, fashion in the context of beauty or you know attractiveness or that sort of thing. And you even look at you, like you have this really interesting look. It's so unique. 
but these fashions change. And that was one of the other things that I learned working for Jack and, and Scott at Esri was they made a big distinction between fashion and infrastructure in the context of business at large. And that there were certain businesses that are fashionable that would sort of go in and out of style. And does and this is much broader than fashion. Fashion with a capital F. And then there's some businesses that are infrastructure poor. But this idea of self-expression seems to be something where we all want to be sort of unique, but we also want to fit in too. So any thoughts about fashion in the context of beauty? Well, I mean, the ways that people express themselves through fashion is more interesting than ever, man. And like, uh, and I think that a lot of it comes directly from internet culture in some ways. I think that's kind of why we're seeing face tattoos as trendy as they are. I think it's directly because like, look what's on the screen right now, you know, and if I want to set myself apart from the guy right next to me and selfies or Snapchat or TikTok, you know, a bunch of tattoos across my face is a sure way to do that. So, um, you know, I was just thinking yesterday too, a little bit about fashion. It's like, as time moves forward, uh, you can remix anything that's gone before, but you know, we keep marching on as well. So it's like, when I was a kid, I had, you know, a certain amount of years of modern fashion to choose from. But now, you know, kids that are younger than me have all that time plus another 40 years on top of that. So they can remix all the old shit I could remix when I was a kid, plus all the new things that had never been thought of before at the time. I was thinking that's like a pretty flexible front. They got like more Legos in their, uh, in their yeah. kit build shit out of, you know, and, uh, yeah. That, yeah. All right. So we've, 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 uh, we've done a pretty good deep dive on beauty. I, I think the participatory bit was really insightful. What else around your process is unique to you or how you approach it? I think language is really important, man. And I've always, you know, I love people that teach me new words. I love, um, vocabulary and, and words and language. I think if I could do it all over again, I might study linguistics and, um, I've always tried to use my relationship with language and English to, to kind of like change the world around me. And so one thing that I've noticed is there is a lot of war metaphors in photography and I don't use them. You've used the word capture a few times in this one. I don't like it. I don't capture people. I don't capture souls. I don't do that. I reflect. I reflect your muni. I reflect what I see or something like that. Co-create um document maybe but uh you know and like shoot shoot has never exactly even uh has never even really like resonated with me because like you do point it up your eye and pull a trigger and yeah. i don't shoot people this is hilarious yeah and it's so obvious how do you say it but like yeah you take capture shoot yeah it's not for me man <laughs> So I just look for every chance I can to assess those things out and turn them on their head. Oh my gosh, that is yeah. that that is powerful and profound. You know, wow, it has been for me. Yeah, I need to get that little uh, like, a, like an atomic bomb sound uh, effect <laughs> so that when I get like these little mind things, like so let's 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 factor that into the show here. Let's do a let's just do a. Oh. Uh, in this particular example, I don't know if an atomic bomb would be appropriate. <laughs> We're avoiding the war. Yeah, I mean, we just we double down on the uh, on the metaphor. You know? Yeah, <laughs> blowing up all assumptions. How about like Nickelodeon? You get slimed. Yeah, slime. I like that. That's good. Why? Well, one of the my favorite memories was you were in uh, Ensenada, you and I, and it was with Donald. Probably like 
2014. And then we ended up having a lunch somewhere and the guys of mariachi band and they had like a full brass, usually mariachi. That's right. A string, you know, they don't have, maybe they have a tuba, like one yeah. tuba, maybe. But they had the whole thing. They had the trumpets, a whole bit. Yeah. <laughs> I borrowed that guy's trumpet. Because you did play trumpet for a bit. You and Baron, there we go. Yeah, that's what it was. I got my horn right here, man. I still play. Um, yeah, that's an that's another one. I want to get like the spaghetti western trumpet sounds. Yeah. All right, you guys heard it first. Is the it was the KK interview where Curdy D started bringing in the sound effects like live because I do have this little sampler. I have eight little buttons I can press here for sounds. I never use them. So I was listening to uh, Zane Lowe um, interview, or he, I love him. He's at his Apple Music. Uh, yeah. He uses sound effects on his podcast. That's so I'm going to copy that. <laughs> but I think well, this is all part of the co- creative process. Like, I think that's a good segue. Who do you, who do you copy and borrow from? What are photographers that you're like, oh man, I want to like, you know, that's my jam. I love that. I want to absorb that. Well, I just got to spend a week with, Asa Mathet um, at the Dent Conference. He's a San Francisco and Hawaii-based conference and portrait photographer. And the guy's amazing, man. He's super inspiring. He, I love the way he works with people. He makes beautiful images. And um, yeah, I, I essentially got to sit at his feet guru style and watch him edit in Lightroom, watch him work with lots of different subjects. I respect him technically and creatively. I like the way he runs his business. Um, it was really cool. And, you know, we've been orbiting each other and working on the same projects or for same similar clients for, you know, more than a decade and we know each other online, but I actually got to rub shoulders with him and it was, yeah, it was really, really awesome. Good. Anybody else come to mind? Just some, real quick. You don't have to give a whole context, but some names that you, uh, you know, you know, this podcast I'm super inspired by and video blog right now is Matt Wolf. You know, this guy? No. I think his thing's called Cool Tools, and he just goes by his name, but he's doing these AI reviews and stuff and all these, like, creative technology reviews, music, video, uh, photos. But he, um, he's he got a really fancy editor or something like that who edits a lot of these AI tools into the video with him on there and stuff. So he just – I love his editing style. He's super insightful, very inspired by Matt Wolf these days. Yeah. Uh, I got one more for you too, dude. Another person I met at Dent that's had me very inspired since I left is Malibu Baby. <laughs> She's like the hottest music producer in LA right now. She just like won a VMA with uh, Nicki Minaj for that remake of um, Rick James's song, Very Freaky Girl. And uh, she just did some stuff with Megan The Stallion and she just remixed some of Shania Twain songs. And she got under the hood of her Pro Tools and like showed me exactly what she's been doing in there, all her hundred layers of audio tracks and the way that she actually, you know, like, I mean, I know what a music producer does, but I've never actually seen underneath the hood of their Pro Tools of them making a modern pop hit, and that was pretty epic. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I want to get into the AI stuff that you're doing because it's so kind of relevant and um, transformative. But real quick, if if, if you're comfortable sharing, uh, I got a. I'd love to just do a real quick kind of sequence of photographer's career in in the context of like, I just got an SLR uh, mirrorless camera just sitting in my closet. I have some photographers, friends locally, and I'm going to go hang out with them and learn a little bit about how to use a camera. But what are, with kind of camera 101, if somebody wants to get into photography and using SLR, what are the, what are the core things they need to learn first? <laughs> 
um i do get a lot of questions as you can imagine about you know like what camera should i buy or you know like what lens should i buy and stuff um camera gear is expensive yeah i tell people to buy the same camera system that their friends have and to swap gear amongst yourselves that's always what's worked for me you know like i'm on canon because the guy who i learned photography from was on canon and he was keen to let me borrow his gear and then i kind of paid that forward by sharing mine with other people and stuff mm -hmm. and so canon and nikon they flip back and forth over the years sony pulled ahead for a while in the mirrorless game at the beginning but now canon's back in the lead and so yeah. anyway i don't um i don't really get too into that I think that whatever brand you choose is fine and they're very, very comparable. They have the same lenses in different categories, all that kind of stuff. So I say pick something and stick with it. Um, but another kind of counterintuitive thing I tell people is um, take your budget, divide it in half and buy one nice lens that the, is the nicest lens you can possibly afford. And then whatever you, whatever budget you have left buy whatever camera you can get with that money. I've had, some of the same lenses that I bought. I bought the best L-series glass when I started one by one, and I've been using them for 25 years. Wow. I've had five or seven camera bodies during that time, but some of the same lenses. You know, these are like like German glass grinding techniques. Don't uh, They don't change that much. They don't change like megapixels or focal points or, you know, shutter speeds or a lot of the other things yeah. that they, the bells and whistles that they sell you digital cameras on and stuff. So, yeah, I say it's more important to invest in awesome lenses than a sweet camera. In fact, you could spend 80% of your budget on the best lens and 20% on an older school fucking digital camera, and you'll still take better photos than your peers. Yeah. And then once you get that camera, what are the first lessons, like top, top, First, you know, one, two, three, like things to learn is like the f-stop or what would. Sure. I mean, if you actually want some technical photo stuff, understanding that triangle between shutter speed, f-stop and ISO is essential. You know, ISO is essentially in the olden days what was film speed. Either you were running 400 speed film or 100 speed film. And uh, 400 speed is faster. You can shoot at lower light and 100 speed is slower. You need more light. Um, so there is a um, proportional relationship between these three things. Um, and so understanding that relationship is really important. And a couple other like tips and tricks. So there's like the, there's a shutter speed uh, rule of thumb, which is like your shutter speed should always be one over the focal length of your lens. So if you're using a 50 millimeter lens, you don't want to shoot any slower than 150th of a second. Whereas if you're shooting a 35 millimeter lens, you can shoot 135th of a second. But if you've got a long zoomy zoom lens, 400 millimeters, you're going to need to shoot at a faster shutter speed, no slower than 1/400th of a second. And that'll prevent you from getting blur um, from you know it being jostled or zoomed or whatever and stuff. Like and have you just been doing it so long that you don't even need to do the math anymore? It's just intuitive. Dude, one of my pieces of advice is make photos every day, share them online every day in a place where you can get feedback on them and then incorporate that feedback by the time tomorrow that you go out and make photos again. And I believe that that's part of what's allowed me to become a master really early in my life. I think in the olden days, you know, if you think about shooting for National Geographic, like a photographer would have done 30 years ago versus me shooting for National Geographic like I did, the process is completely different. An old photographer would have gone somewhere with film, 
made film. If they were on a long trip, they would have been sending film back home to a photo editor as they were away. Um, or they may keep the film with them and return back with it and develop it when they get there. At that point, you know, they begin the process of developing it, working with an art director to get it into publication. Then it gets printed, mailed places. Eventually somebody reads it and then maybe they write like a letter to the editor or a letter to you saying like, oh, the covers of the Pharaohs issue of uh, National Geographic was really exceptional this year, except uh, I didn't like the lighting. Well, you know, whatever, give me some feedback. So it might take six months or more if you ever get any. It can be so expensive too to get. To oh, yeah, man. And now, like, I mean, this is, I had like 10,000 followers on Flickr and they were giving me feedback every single day on the photos I made that day. And I was able, like pro photographers, teachers, inventors of digital cameras, all sorts of perspectives, you know, and like I was able to get real-time feedback from the whole wide world on stuff and then i was headed right back out in the field again tomorrow and i could make more photos thinking of the things i had learned and and so i think that um i would highly encourage that if you want to accelerate your growth as a photographer get out there make stuff get it online read the comments incorporate it into your into your work yeah i love that i uh i've been able to go to kelly slater surf ranch 10 times in two years which is kind of insane because it's, you know, it's like it be able to go once as a lifetime. Yeah. And, uh, I'm getting pretty good at writing tubes. And I think I'd be getting good at writing tubes in my 40s. And it's because the you got the coach on the jet ski being like, hey, here it comes, duck. And then you got the, the they're videoing it. After the session, you go in and they watching the video and the coach is actually moving your body. Yo, if your audience hasn't seen you do this yet, they should go check it out. Like, I, I just watched one for the first time on your channel like a month ago, and I don't know how they do it. It looks like there's a train track along the shore or yeah, something. It's a train track, yeah. Yeah, it's insane. And they pull a train through the water, which makes a perpetually breaking pipeline wave. Yeah, big foil, yeah, it's insane. Yeah, and it's a seven-foot perfect tube that's 500 yards, and it takes a minute to go from you know top to bottom talk about accelerating your progression as a master surfer i know well this is this is the insight it's that it's being able to get that feedback loop in real next to real time because you know yeah you know uh, i i'm able to go and bring so many friends and and, uh, and then you can just go back to the beginning of the pipe and do another one you don't have to wait yeah. for, well it's in a controlled environment too because yeah. in the in nature the wave is always dynamic but here the wave is the same so you could work on the one little bit and it's a controlled experiment. And it's always there when you want it. Yeah, it's insane. So, I mean, I think, yeah, I think you, the thing about the Flickr thing that's so interesting, how, how would somebody, I guess people could do that now because, you know, maybe, maybe Flickr's not. Oh, I mean, we got lots of places to still do that. I mean, some will go do that. I mean, some people are doing that on Instagram. Yeah. You know, it essentially has all the same features of what I just told you, it just doesn't have some of the like high resolution creative commons and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But then there's all sorts of, you know, forums. There's Flickr is still full of photographers where they're doing that. There's all the stock photography sites that exist out there where people are doing the same kind of thing. And I mean, the whole that like they're, you know, like think of all the Discord forums where AI artists and photographers are hanging out. It's like the most interesting things on the internet are happening under the surface. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great segue into um, AI and kind of the emerging future and in, in, in the context of surfing, it's kind of a bit of a corny analogy, but <laughs> riding the wave of, of the, there is a, a, a wave element to this stuff and it, these things do come in waves. 
I, uh, pretty active investor and I've been making a lot of investments into AI stocks lately in the last bid. What kind of companies are you interested in? I mean, the obvious ones, the chip makers like NVIDIA and, um, AMD, but, um, I'm also invested in a uh, super micro and, um, the one called AEHR systems. Um, there's about six or seven that I've been, uh, investing in. And my bet is it's going to back to the wave that it's going to be even a bigger wave than mobile and mobile brought us, you know, Facebook and Apple and, you know, like a lot of the big fang stocks are, yeah, since seven are beneficiaries of mobile. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, the AI stuff for me has been interesting. We're starting this new fund we just launched and like, we have a big vision for it and there's a, there's a blockchain component to it and. Uh, we were just, I was able to use the GPT to like, Hey, you know, show me, you know, generate, you know, tell me all the different types of tokens that there are example, like security token, stable token, uh, give me the characteristics of each of the token. Give me, um, examples, uh, of the top five tokens for each class. What are the market cap? And then print it into a spreadsheet. Boom. There it is. I look at the day and this is, Oh, you know what? You know, and then I, I, I add this component as a new column when, you know, and then boom, it would add it. And it was like having a, a six figure analyst on demand for free in near real time. Yeah. And getting, I'm getting so smart on this stuff and my productivity is going through the roof. My partner's like, holy smokes, dude. Like, how do you do this? Yeah. You know, and finally, so I'm losing GPTs. You're really well equipped um, to take advantage of this because you're one of the early guys on the whole like virtual assistant revolution thing. I noticed too. You like you've been doing you've been doing a good job of focusing yourself on the high value tasks of thinking, creativity, and strategy for a long time. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's definitely. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Well, I think having said that, talk to us about what. What do you see as exciting and possible with AI and how are you approaching it and what are you, um, what are you learning and what, what are you excited about? Sure. Um, well, let's start with what I'm grateful for. <laughs> At the beginning of the pandemic, you know, I, I got home from uh, a trip to Africa one week before travel got shut down. And I had been a perpetual motion machine leading up to the pandemic. I had been on the road for more or less 10 years. I had a place in Vancouver and a place on Galliano Island. And I was neither, I was never at neither of them. I was always out and about. And I came home and a week later, things shut down. And that was a big deal to me because I was a traveling photographer. And most of my money comes from the event called, or the line item called event photographer and somebody's budget. You know, I, I bring a lot more to the table in terms of, community engagement and social media and stuff, but it's photography that ends up paying my bills. And so, you know, as you and everyone remembers, there was no flying anywhere. There was no meeting up or leaving your house. There was no face to face. And so I gave up my Vancouver apartment. I hunkered down on the Galliano Island where I rented a a huge greenhouse. I bought some ducks and some sheep and some goats and i became a freaking farmer for three years man i grew my own food i raised those animals i grew some ganja and i just had a time i got to flex my muscles doing all the stuff that i had wanted to do um when i had been too busy to do it i was really happy for you even though 
I knew it was probably challenging. Uh, it was so interesting, man. Like population 900 on my island. So already it's quiet. There's no stores. There's no street lights. There's no stoplights. Already it's quiet at the best of times. Um, but it was really quiet during the pandemic. And then, um, you know, there was this weird tension, which is, you know, we were under the same restrictions and lockdowns as everybody else in the world. But we didn't have any COVID. The first COVID case happened 14 months after the the actual shutdown. And um, it never really ended up getting very bad at all. Um, so that was kind of an interesting one because we had to kind of jump through the same hoops and and do some of the same theatrics that everybody else had to do. Um, but there wasn't any, there's very little risk in our particular case. So that was, uh, that was an interesting one. But anyway, just a long way of saying I had become inert when it came to my career. I had no career for those couple of years. You know, I was legit a farmer <laughs> yeah and um and i loved it um but you know last year i shouldn't say i was a nerd i also learned filmmaking i partnered up with a woman on hornby island called Joaquin Sheehy, and we worked for the hornby island arts council we got a huge grant and we made uh, 10 documentaries 10 15 minute documentaries about artists on hornby island and, and i hadn't made i've done short form video and one take video but i had never done and I've done like cameraman work on other people's feature length films, but I had never been like an assistant director on a film project. And, and that was, that was epic. So, but long way of saying, uh, it was AI last year, me stumbling upon mid journey that kind of roused me from my slumber and got me flexing those kind of geek muscles again, got me staying up late and waking up early to mess around with the tools and ultimately putting myself back out there. It was kind of accidental in lots of ways. I went to go learn mid-journey and I noticed that it was on Discord. And when I went to their Discord, it was fucking chaos. There was, you know, just, I didn't know any of these people. I didn't know what the heck was going on. Uh, there was images flying left and right everywhere. And I had been recovering from a devastating hack in 2017 uh, where I got brought to my knees digitally by a malicious fucking a actor um so anyway i was a little bit nervous to put myself out there in the discord space in public all the way not really knowing my security arrangement you know at the time or whatever so i started my own discord server i installed the mid-journey bot there and some other kind of bots and i started messing and i invited a couple of my friends to it and i started messing around on my own server with mid-journey kind of in semi-public or whatever what is um, mid-journey mid-journey is a text to image generation tool it's a lot like OpenAI's Dolly, but um, and it's a lot like the uh, more open, so like stable diffusion. But I'd say at the moment, it's the industry standard for text to image generation. Put in some words via prompt, get back some amazing images. My wife is a world class designer, mostly doing software design, and um, but she loves to do branding and she and uh, and and also graphics and. Um, she put together some stuff for work and they, she did some text image and she's like, basically create uh, astronauts um, holding surfboards on the moon. And it was the coolest imagery and she did it in like no time at all. She loves this stuff because it just helps her to like pump out more stuff. Man, it's hard to wrap your head around how significant the changes are. I was at a conference this week called the Frontier Summit where they're examining kind of future technologies. And I met a woman there who's the art director for an online furniture retailer. So they sell only furniture, only online. So their main, one of their main businesses is generating 
photography about those products to represent those products online. They, they don't have a showroom. They don't got retail. The only things their customers ever see are the photographs they make in-house of their products. And to do that, they've got a team of 12 in their photo studio, four photographers, four stylists, and some set de decoration people, and then some photo editors and stuff like that. She told me they have decided to move to a 100% AI photography studio, effective immediately. So they, boom. Uh, well, if it, it means these photographers are lucky they've got a sweet employer because they went reached out to the federal government to get some retraining, some like technology displacement retraining dollars, but they're retraining their photographers and photo stylists and photo editors as CGI 3D modelers, as AI prompt engineers, as fucking data scientists, and they're essentially going to create photorealistic assets of all of their products in the future and do all generative photography going forward. That's it. As a, like, I knew this was coming someday in the future. Uh, it's easy to conceive of it making this profound of change, but this has happened already right now. But in the context of gender, and this this is getting into why the, why in Hollywood here in LA, why all the strikes are happening. It sounds like they got they got they're getting some resolution, but and I think what it was was that I don't know all the details to it, but AI was a big part of it, and that they basically the 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 film and entertainment industry through the unions are prohibited from using AI unless the creators opt in. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess in the context of that story that you just told, was it? Does that mean that, like, is this stuff going to be photorealistic? And absolutely, it's photorealistic today, Curdy. It's photorealistic right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's going to be photorealistic, and it's going to be controllable like they'll be able to control like let's say they they build a room that is a 3d modeled virtual room of an apartment in vancouver and it and and their customers really like that or they identify with it they can just keep modeling that room throughout time or whatever some of the original image generative stuff you know you type in an astronaut on the moon and every single time you'd get a different astronaut and if you loved one of your astronauts you could never get him to come back you couldn't get that same astronaut to come back on mars or on jupiter yeah. enough but uh, that's you know one of the, the things that's changing. So how does a how does a workflow start? Then there's an idea of the office furniture. Do they take real photos to start as a base layer, and then they build up from that, or how do they how do they how does a customer get the actual uh, product that that is the actual product that is delivered to them, and have it be the same thing as what was marketed? I believe it's that they're going to be making 3D models of all those things now, and they're going to use that as one of the generative capabilities inside this model that they're training. Pretty crazy. I mean, in the context of my story about the fun and the research and it being pro product productive, I think that's one of the things that I'm really excited about with this emerging technology is um, productivity. And like social media, and I'm studying for my CFA, Chartered Financial Analyst. It's like, yeah. It's it's pretty like wonky investor shit and uh, and and the pro productivity bit as I think about it, like social media. Like I was looking at my social media stats on my phone. I spend an hour a day on Instagram. I did. I just found this out this week. I had no idea I spent that much time. I'm like, holy smokes! I got to stop looking at Instagram. They do such a good job of just getting me like on there and coming back. I'm like. No wonder I'm behind on my studies because I'm like looking at the IG so much. 
AI got me off Instagram, man. I can hardly move my thumb like this two times anymore without bouncing straight over to my Discord to learn something new instead. Uh, that's the thing I'm the most stoked about is is like the learning. Dude, I have been a technically competent designer and UX guy for my whole life, but I legit can say now I'm flexing developer technical chops. I've used the advanced code analyzer, or it's called advanced data analysis. It used to be called code analyzer inside GPT, dude. I went to a hackathon in New York a month ago and I wrote a OpenAI chat GPT powered AI chat bot for the transportation sector where you can literally be like, uh, what time is the next bus coming? And it uses the GPS uh, data on your phone with open data sets provided by the um, transportation in New York there and to return exactly, you know, what, what you're asking for stuff. And dude, I had to set up a virtual environment on my phone or on my computer. I had to download and install a bunch of you know libraries via terminal i had to write the application in python then i had to choose some mobile serving technology and i chose one and i did some development using gpt in it but i chose the wrong one uh because when i went to ask somebody for help they're like oh shit you're gonna be stuck for a long time that's a very hard language to debug i think you should switch it over to react native instead then it's in javascript i'll be able to help you out so i was able to in like a fraction of the time I had spent debugging the other code, essentially port the whole mobile app part of this application that I had written this weekend into another framework and then deploy it. I use GPT to document it, to, to like to write all the software documentation for the app that I had developed. Yep. And then I use it to teach me how to use GitHub to commit all my code to the open source repository and stuff. So it's like, I've written probably like five small software app, maybe even more than that applications in the last six months uh a little web scraper that scrapes email addresses off my computer um you know all sorts of stuff man i mean i've been really messing around and my technical chops have just grown exponentially in the last six months well i think that's a great example of the point i was trying to illustrate where social media was very anti-productive Sitting there, nasal gazing, not even nasal gazing, because at least a nasal gazing, na navel gazing, <laughs> nasal gazing. That's funny. Uh, it's like that um, Neil Postman book, entertaining ourselves to death or amusing ourselves to death. Oh, yeah, but I'm not going to like pat myself on the back because all I do is I bounce over to AI and then instead I generate my face on like a thousand futuristic freaking cyberpunks or whatever. So I'm still jerking off over there and uh, nasal nasal gaming over there as well too, but uh, in a different way. But I think the, the I think this idea of like learning and learning new stuff and pushing yourself and being able to be more productive, I, I, I don't know, I'm, I am a productive productivity uh it's amazing how much one person can do now yeah. like i've always avoided editing audio and video like the plague because you know for every one minute of edited video you see there's literally like 10 hours trapped in a dark room of doing proper video editing it took place to show you that one minute and that's always freaked me out but with these new ai tools and stuff man i can i can actually edit audio and video and still have a life yeah, yeah, I love that. <laughs> um, two quick questions to close up. Um, you could have any band, artist, singer, songwriter, rapper, any sort of musical uh, 
you know, style like that. And um, it, it playing uh, any venue in the world, uh, past, present, or future, who would it be? Where? Wow. Any band playing any venue? Yeah. And here's the thing. I've been asking everybody this question with the, the the hope and the fantasy that maybe one day there's an AI that I can actually deliver back to them. Like they're uh, some kind of like uh, augmented virtual reality experience of them seeing this this uh, this thing. All right. I'm going to give a two-part answer. Um, on the like the big epic side, I think teenage KK would like to go to like the Acropolis in Greece and hear like you two sing all their hits from my youth. Well, I think I'd really like that. Uh, I think I they're actually you do. I got to hear you two do the Joshua Tree tour at the Rose Bowl, and I had that house out in the Joshua Tree, and yeah, and Mufter took mushrooms and went to the show, and it was amazing. Yeah. I think they just kicked off their tour at that new venue called the Sphere in Vegas, and I heard that it was something else. Yeah, yeah, I would. Yeah, I check that out. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know what else I'd really love to do? I'd love to get like a super trippy, like Brian Eno ambient set from like the International Space Station or something. Oh like my that. god! Like a little. T- like a little cuddle puddle, warm and snuggly zone of Brian Eno inside the space station. Dude, that Mike, where, where's the sound for the 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 explosion? <laughs> oh, maybe you need, you know, you need to come up with some kind of like, uh, well, you know, Brian Eno and, and Dan Lanois, they have this uh, album that I can't remember that Brian Eno. I'm definitely gonna bring my own sound effects for version two of this talk. Great. I love it. Um, yeah, so Brian Eno and Daniel Lenoir produced an album in the kind of early, mid-80s called Apollo, Atmospheres and Soundtracks. Mm-hmm. You know that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's love that. Well, if people want to get a hold of you online, what's a good channel? Um, I guess the best way to track me down is at my website, uh, K-R-I-S-K-R-U-G.co, chriskrug.co. I used to be chriskrug.com, but that's the only asset I didn't get back in that Mac. But you'll find me everywhere. I'm Chris Krug on YouTubes and Instagrams and all the places. Yeah, at KK still? Nope. Nope. That was, that was part of the hack, huh? Yeah, man. Actually, yeah. We'll, we'll save that for another well, yeah, another episode. All right, we'll stand by. Everybody will be riveted to hear that about the hack and humanizing success on part two. But Chris Krug, so much respect. I learned a lot from you today and in the past and I so appreciate uh, you and our friendship and I can't wait to see you soon I love you brother thank you very much thanks again to my friend Chris Krug for being our guest I'm excited to continue to track Chris's awesome work and I encourage you to follow along too I'm at Curdy D on Twitter and Instagram also Kurt Derricks on LinkedIn the content moved you please do give us a rating review at any of your favorite podcasting sources but apple podcast spotify it's all good and until next time curdy d loves you so does bianca (laughs) thanks for listening to review the show notes for this episode which includes a summary key takeaways and any links mentioned visit curdyd.com be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts to be notified when new episodes go live Stay tuned for more unique perspectives shaping the world on The Curdy D Show.